0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On nights 2.7 and 106 FM.
1: The Money Show brought to you by Absa CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insight Series. Absa is a registered FSP. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. The Anglo-American chief executive, Duncan Wanblatt, is standing by. We're going to be looking at a smorgasbord of sorrows, of results coming through, all equally devastating, yet stock markets being lifted by what we're calling the NVIDIA effect, uh, one of the world's biggest technology companies, fastest-growing technology technology companies powered by the sale of its AI chips is seeing record profits coming through share price up another 13% today. In the meantime, Japan's main stock market index is at an all-time high. Uh, The last time the Nikkei 225 index was at these levels was on the 29th of December 1989. That's the last time, 34 years ago. The main boost coming from the NVIDIA effect, of course, had boosted the technology shares on the Nikkei 225. Less than three years after that peak in, 19, in 1989, 1989, less than three years after that peak, Japan's economy was in tattered. The Nikkei 225 had fallen 60% and there were big defaults in the property sector and there was very little economic growth for most of the last three decades. Suddenly, however, things are coming to life. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 for the first time in 34 years at record levels. The Money Show
2: with Bruce
0: Whitfield on 702. 702.
1: Welcome to The Money Show this evening. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when action with collaboration through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, to Duncan Oneblood we go now, and for the second time in just over a decade, Anglo-American is weighing up its portfolio, which is mostly iron ore and nickel and platinum and copper. There's a bit of coal still and diamonds. And it's deciding which bits to keep and which to let go. Today, announcing it's writing down the value of De Beers by 30 billion rand following its shock. 94% collapse in annual profits. Duncan, Oneplus on the line to us from London this evening. Duncan, your predecessor, Mark Kirifani, was wrestling with this issue probably 10 or 12 years ago. And he was contemplating exiting iron ore assets. And at the last minute, there was a change in strategy Thank goodness. But I think it underpins just how big and difficult and complicated a task this restructuring business actually is.
3: Hi, Bruce. Yes, look, uh, I mean, the, the whole purpose of uh, of uh, of the asset reviews uh, in, in the portfolio is really around the robustness of the whole of the portfolio as opposed to deciding, you know, fundamentally what's in and what's out. I mean, every asset in a portfolio, every business in a portfolio has to, uh, you know, has to carry its weight. Uh, you know, and it has to do that through the cycles, and that's the most important thing uh, in terms of delivering value in a in a multi commodity type of business, uh, and that's uh, that's something that really isn't uh, uh, needed to happen periodically. I think it's got to happen consistently. Uh, you know, throughout the cycle. And that's uh, and that's all we're doing at the moment.
1: I remember uh, meeting Don Tooth. I don't know if you ever came across Don Tooth, a wonderfully named man. Of course, yes. You <laughs> ran Fargelechen very successfully. And it was at the last crisis that Anglo had, where he jokingly said, well, Fargelechen is the only profitable asset in the entire Anglo-American portfolio, which was kind of ironic <laughs> for, a, for a mining company. But you've got to make these long-term decisions, haven't you? And you've got to try and figure out what is going to be needed, what is going to be in demand and what can you mine effectively and profitably not tomorrow next week or next year but a decade and two decades from now i think that
3: is absolutely spot on the money uh bruce without a doubt i mean the decisions that we make in terms of the value of the whole of the business the portfolio has to be looked at through the whole of the cycle you know it was just two years ago that uh, Anglo Platinum made seven billion dollars yeah. of contribution to the to the group's EBITDA, and in the same year, I think De Beers made one and a half billion dollars of contribution to the group's EBITDA. You know, both of those businesses have been really impacted by a real downturn in the cycle of those uh, of those commodities, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not good businesses at all. And as you say, the decisions that we need to make uh, associated with uh, the assets in the portfolio have to be done through a very long-term lens of uh, of value.
1: Uh, for for example, in De Beers, and I don't mean to preempt anything here, but it, for example, in De Beers, which if you look at the portfolio as it stands at the moment, um, De Beers is possibly the least popular of your family members at the moment. In a world of lab-grown diamonds, in a world where normal people can't tell the difference between the real thing and a lab-grown diamond, De Beers does seem to be quite a tough asset to hold on to long term. Look, the
3: Beers is uh, is absolutely in the bottom of a cycle, and we've seen this before. We saw it yeah. in two thousand and eight. We saw it in twenty fourteen, uh, and there's no doubt that uh, that as the world's GDP comes under pressure, uh, then then uh, you know the diamond business really does uh, does take the brunt of that, and it is cyclical. So what we do know is that there is a return from these sorts of cycles. As I say, you know, just two years ago, it made one and a half billion dollars of contribution to the Group's EBITDA. So, uh, so uh, you know, that's how we look at these businesses and what's most important in, uh, in, a, in a company like De Beers is when you look through uh, not only the cycle, but all the, the asset base and the industry per se, then in, t- in the world of, uh, of natural diamonds, there are very few assets, the quality of those that, uh, that exist within the De Beers portfolio today and in a world where supply is really drying up in terms of new resources coming on stream, then that really does put the Beers in a very remarkable position, actually. Uh,
1: it does. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it's part of an Anglo portfolio for the long term. In the same way, uh, you know, EVs at the moment in a bit of a slump and Hertz is giving back 20,000 vehicles because people don't want to rent them anymore. They're expensive to fix. The batteries are monumentally expensive to replace. And, you, and they probably are still based on, current technologies the future of of of, uh, of commuting and of, of passenger transport but maybe they're not and somehow you've got a forecast demand for for ev vehicles of which nickel is a key component of which you produce and copper which you've i think you've mentioned in the last couple of weeks you're looking to ramp up copper supply out out of zambia
3: well, no, not Zambia. I mean, we, we okay. do have uh, we do have a really big uh, big copper business, uh, but and we've just brought on, as you know, Kiveco in uh, in Peru. We've got development options uh, and growth options within uh, our Koyawasi project, within our Koyawasi operations in Chile, uh, as well as the expansion to to Queveco and uh, and a very nice little resource that we're pursuing in Finland, uh, which is uh, which is a, a polymetallic resource which includes not only copper and nickel but also also PGMs. So, uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's fundamental to, to the growth portf- growth side of the portfolio that uh, that we have in addition to uh, the polyhalites mine up in Yorkshire.
1: Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, one wouldn't think of Anglo-American mining in Yorkshire and in Finland, but it again talks to the global diversification and the fact is you've got to go to where the resources are still available, and regardless of how cold it is or how difficult it is or uh, whether the beer is warm or not. Um, I think the point here is that there are no sacred cows as far as Anglo American is concerned. You've got to be absolutely ruthless and quite cool and maybe even cold about the process, um, which you, you say is going to take over a year.
3: Uh, well, look. I mean, I, w- w- what I did say is that uh, is that when you're looking through a portfolio like this, then uh, then value has to be the key driver, and value is informed by a number of very important components, and these include plan for every one of these assets the markets within which those assets are operating the time that we are in the, in terms of the cycle uh, the role that those assets play in the in the greater portfolio as uh, as well as the fact that uh, that if you were thinking of adding anything or or, uh, or reducing anything you've got to think through what the frictional costs of that additional subtraction would be as you say through the cycle and, and without a doubt, it does, you do have to be ruthless and you do have to suspend all emotion uh, when you do this. And you have to absolutely look at it, uh, you know, through a, through a stakeholder, including a shareholder value lens uh, to make the right decisions. But you need to make them over the right time frames, without a doubt. And, uh, and by the way, Bruce, Anglo-American has operated in Yorkshire before. Oh, really? Uh, so we have already built them up in Yorkshire and operated quite successfully for about 20 years, I think.
1: Um, Cynthia Carroll was very unpopular uh, in April twenty twenty twelve 2012, when she suspended the payment of dividends. The unthinkable happened uh, within Anglo-American. Nobody was used to everyone sort of you know, thought that Anglo-American was the forever dividend pair that there'd be incremental increases every year and there was so much trouble that she suspended it. You've seen profits fall by 94% just because the winds have been against you and practically everyone of your your major portfolios, you've not suspended the dividend, but you've nearly halved it from 74 to 41 US cents, despite that profit fall. That's sending a message that, yes, times are tough, but this isn't all fall down as far as Anglo-Americans concerned.
3: That's, uh, That's exactly right, Bruce. I mean, actually, we haven't changed our dividend policy at all. Uh, you know, which really seeks to distribute forty percent of the earnings of the business. So, to the extent that the earnings uh, okay. drop for for the reasons that you've just said, you know, a hundred percent of the delta between the twenty twenty two earnings and the twenty three earnings was fundamentally a function of uh, of diamond and uh, and PGM revenues. Uh, it doesn't doesn't change the way we think about the dividend, and uh, and absolutely represents the confidence that we have in uh, in the cycle and uh, and the company itself.
1: Duncan Blood, thank you very, very much indeed. Duncan is the Chief Executive of Anglo-American on the line to us this evening from London. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The markets. To Graham Kerner we go. Graham Kerner with the Kerner perspective on a Thursday evening here on the Money Show, and I described it earlier. Graham as a smorgasbord of sorrows. Anglo's to Grindrod to Goldfields to Pick and Pay, Tiger Brands, and we can throw Blue Label Telecoms into it. Just dreadful outlooks, dreadful results, dreadful updates. Uh, We've covered Anglo's largely with Duncan One Blood. Let's give Pick and Pay the full. (laughs) Thank you. The <laughs> cat Kerner treatment if we can here. It really does need attention, Graham, because what Pick and Pay has announced today is something fairly dramatic, a rights issue. This is where a company issues new shares and says to its existing shareholders, would you like to put money in? You're welcome to buy shares at X price. Uh, if you do that, you you then stay invested at the same level as before. If you don't do it, then your investment, your proportion of shares that you hold in the company is... Is diluted lower. It's a big deal, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Bruce, I think you summarized a, a rights issue and the risk of not following your rights beautifully. Um, if you look at it, I mean, I think at, at close, the the market cap of, of pick and pay was about $10 billion if memory serves. They're looking to raise, I think, about $4 billion. So back of matchbox calculations for me says for every five shares you hold, you'll probably have the right to buy two if you don't buy those two or follow your rights, probably at a deeper discount than even the current price, um, you're going to you're going to dilute yourself because you'll still have your five shares, but uh, as you rightly say, you you don't have the same uh, pro rata um, holding in in uh, pick and pay. So, you know, I must say, you know, a lot of a lot has been said over the years about the delisting wave that's hit the JSE, but I mean, ultimately. That's why people have listings so that you can go to the capital markets and you can say, we need to raise capital. The difference is you would like them to be on the front foot and say, we've got this really beautiful acquisition in Africa that's going to, you know, m- contribute massively rather than coming to the market saying, listen, we've got eight billion rands worth of debt. We need to invest in the business just to, you know, maintain ourselves. But the, that's the bottom line. What I'm saying is that's why Companies are listed so that you can tap into the capital markets, but as you beautifully summarized, you know, if you don't follow your rights, you really are giving something to somebody else if you think that this company is going to recover, which I would argue on balance of arguments, it probably will with the injection of the four billion but it's going to be a long and winding road for them i think
1: it's built up a lot of debt and that debt has escalated quite suddenly in the last six months it's a bit alarming and understandably pick and pays bankers may have been knocking on the door saying excuse me excuse me you've um you owe us cash um they've done a deal with the banks to to uh to keep away for a while at least
2: yeah yeah, but I think the bottom line is, um, you know, what I'm enjoying about Sean's, um, you know, return is he's he's not afraid to to do difficult things, you know. Um, to go to the markets at these very depressed share prices and say we've got to do a rights issue, um, that shows character and a, a, a determination to fix the problem. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the reason for the ramp-up in debt, well, firstly, I think the core supermarket business is lagging. Um, you know, ShopRite really has is in a league of their own, and I think it's hurting the likes of, of Thick and Pace. I think the, the festive season was pretty awful. So ShopRite, oh, sorry, the supermarket business not doing well. At the same time, they're obviously investing money in the clothing business and in ASAP, et cetera, and all of that needs funding. It needs capital, and the core business is not generating the cash too to, to drive that growth. So I think that's the primary reason for for the significant increase in debt. And as you say, I think the debtors have been patient, but they're not going to be patient forever. And... Uh, it, it's probably going to take a while for the core operation, the core SA supermarkets yeah. to turn around. Uh,
1: what they're doing is there are two parts to the story. They're going to raise 4 billion Rand from shareholders, say you're invited to buy shares at a discount. Uh, and then there's going to be a separate listing um, of the, the jewel in the crown of Boxer. Um, this is something mm. that has grown exponentially in recent years. Uh, th- Pick and Pay wants to keep control of Boxer, but it will allow other investors to buy shares in it. Um, that will raise further money as well, which is kind of encouraging. I wonder the why they've got themselves into this position versus ShopRite, where Pick and Pay is underinvested. ShopRite has led the way by investing in its business. Have you got an explanation for that, Greg? Well, I can try, Bruce. I think
2: if, and and, I mean, Duncan was just talking about the dividend payout ratio of 40% in Anglos and how they've maintained that. Um, I looked earlier today and, you know, over, let's say, 10 or 12 years, um, pick and pay has been very generous with dividends um, and arguably at a time when they probably should have been investing in DCs and other things and ASAP and the clothing business. So effectively, shareholders have been rewarded with very handsome dividend payouts. So I think the average payout ratio over the last decade or so was around 73%. You compare that with ShopRite over the same period is probably 50% or maybe just a little bit over that and it's been ticking up of late. So, so for me, that's the bottom line that, you know, they should have been investing back into the businesses and one might argue you know, they the model was wrong and there were strategic pivots, you know, into new brands and things which were ill considered. But the the bottom line is I think they were paying out too much, not reinvesting in the growth, whereas ShopRite was doing exactly the opposite. And that's why I think ShopRite's in such a powerful position now, having built incredible DCs. 6060 60 is absolutely flying. So I think it it it's as simple as that. Over the years that cash that should have been rolled back in let's say the difference between a 70-odd percent payout ratio and 50% payout ratio could have actually laid the foundation for for the business growth that we now think that, um, that they need through ASAP and the clothing business. So for me, that's it. And arguably, those shareholders have been there for a long time and have collected wonderful dividends. You know, now they've got to sort of, (laughs) <laughs> move it from the one pocket to the other and say, right, I'm, I'm taking my dividends and I'm ploughing them back into the business through the rights issue. But I think for me, that's the core. Uh, apart from strategy, it was the fact that they just didn't invest in their own business sufficiently.
1: I mean, just to clarify, dividend ratio. So if I make a profit of 100 rand and I've got a dividend policy of paying out 73%, um, I pay out 73 rand out of the 100 rand. I give that back to investors. If my policy is 50%, then I give them 50 rand and I keep 50 rand inside the business to develop it, to grow it, to to invest in growth, right? Mm.
2: Absolutely. And Anglo-American's policy is to pay out 40%. Of course, you, you have the option to always do special dividends. Sure. Uh, but, but in principle, uh, you know, our view is always businesses that are growing, that are expanding, that need capital, a lower dividend payout ratio. You can always crank the dividend up later, but you have got you cannot starve the business of the capital and the funding that it needs to grow. And I think that's really what Pick and Pay in large part has done over the last few years.
1: I wonder how much the role of the fact that the Ackermans have got a control structure um, that gives them control of the business has led to a higher dividend ratio than perhaps in ShopRite, which doesn't have, um, yeah, they've got more complex structures or had more complex structures when Christo Visa was involved in terms of how he called the shots there and, and Whitey Person called the shots. But there aren't big shareholder blocks in ShopRite in the same way as they are in pick and pay
2: correct yeah obviously um things have, have changed quite a lot, but it, exactly to your point i think I think the old control structure and the family obviously enjoyed the dividends um and maybe were slightly less operationally involved than than they were maybe twenty years ago, so I think that probably laid the foundation for them just to, you know at, at a at a board meeting to hear okay we we're we recommending a seventy percent payout and you know if you if you're not being told the business actually needs the funding, then exactly you'll be only too happy to take that so yes, I do think the you know the family probably enjoyed the dividend uh, yield as well um but yeah, um, we are where we are now. The question for shareholders is do you follow your rights yeah. and we're not invested there, but if I was, I would say you've got to be you know loopy to not follow your rights if you've come this far um and i think i think what i'm seeing from sean is is all the right things you know tough decisions i think the clothing business is is, is trading well boxes we've discussed this is is doing very very nicely um i think asap is getting going so you know it's just a case of you, you know it's going to take a few years and you you just have no choice i believe but to recapitalize it and to, to restructure the balance sheet so um, if I was a shareholder, I would definitely follow my rights in the campaign.
1: And, pay. and uh, it'd be interesting to see what the Ackermans do. Of course, uh, it's logical that they would follow their rights too. But if they follow their rights and retain control. Uh, Then, uh, what impact does that have on other shareholders? Do they go, oh, actually, maybe you know, maybe we we take our money elsewhere? It's going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, uh, There's been so many stories today. I don't know what you see as the most important. We've done Anglo's. There's, There's blue label in the mix. There's goldfields in the mix. There is Tiger Brands in the mix. Pick one and tell us why you've picked it.
2: Well, I think Anglos is is interesting because, you know, what Duncan was basically saying is exactly like Sean is doing at Pick and Pay. You know, tough decisions have to be taken. The environment is not conducive. You know, those old cash cows in, in diamonds and, and platinum are having a tough time, courtesy of a few things. Um and they have to they have to attack the cost base. Um I actually quite like that, that UK um agricultural commodity business. Um, I know they are looking for a partner, but I think agricultural commodities are, are a very exciting place. So again, you know, you've got to take a long view, and I think that's what Anglos has always done. But um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll look back maybe three or four years from now and say, gee, you remember how, how tough it was and the earnings fell because of impairments and a whole lot of accounting noise and, and, and whatnot. But um, I think... we're getting to the phase where where Anglos is going to look a lot more interesting than it has for some time, particularly if, as you see, I mean, the big movers in our market today were the platinum stocks, so, you know, impalas and platts driven by firmer metal prices. So if if the PGMs were to do well and you see demand returning for De Beers' uh, core uh, diamond offering – uh, you know, this business could look very different not so long, uh, you know, not so far into the future. So I think, yeah, you, you, you've got to be a little bit patient with Anglos, but it always reminds me of the fact that, you know, commodity stocks are different to other things. Banks, you can hold through cycles. I think with commodities, you want to be a little bit more. When the time is right, you you load up on them. When the market has run hard, before somebody rings a bell, you offload them. Okay. Um, but I think they're moving back into the territory where they're actually quite good value It's a fundamentally solid balance sheet, um, and it's diversified. So, yeah, I think Anglos will reward people in the long term, but it's going to be like... It can pay probably a, a difficult
1: year or two. Yeah, And with all the bad news in our market today, you would have expected the JSE to take a beating, but it didn't. Um, it rose strongly, more than 1,000 points, but then world markets were really strong today. And somebody said to me earlier today, oh, it's the NVIDIA effect. A lot of people won't even know what NVIDIA is. It's a microchip maker that focuses on making AI microchips. It saw its profits go up by... Nearly 300% to $22 billion just in the fourth quarter of last year. reported late last night. And that NVIDIA effect yeah. seems to have lifted absolutely everything. A quick thought in 30 seconds? Yeah, I think exactly
2: right. I think NVIDIA alone, because there was a lot of anxiety around, is the AI rally, you know, the, the Magnificent 7, is that over? And, you know, they just absolutely shot the lights out. So I think that was good. And also, you know, the initial jobless claims in the U.S. also looked quite positive. But I think, you know, we can all thank NVIDIA management for a job well done because it's really lit a, a rocket under world markets.
1: Thank you. Graham Kerner. Graham Kerner from the, with a the Kerner perspective. The Money Show.
2: With Bruce
0: Whitfield on 702.
1: 702. The Muddy Show brought to you by Absa CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insight Series. It's a lot of collaboration, a lot of insights. Absa is a registered FS. He, uh, Merrill Pick standing by for us this evening. We'll chat to Meryl um, all about Pick and Pay and where to next for the Ackerman family. Then Jan and at uh, My Broadband on the astonishing story of the chief executive at London-based Bytes Technology, Neil Murphy, and the share transactions that have unstuck his career. And then a marvellous story, a really amazing story. I spent a lot of time earlier this week really putting it together and learning and figuring out how Avenge was rescued from near collapse. It is by no means the company it was that helped build the 2010 infrastructure. It is a fundamentally different business. Its management's gonna sit in Australia, the head office is gonna be in Joburg, the listings in Joburg. It's a really interesting way of resurrecting in a Lazarus-like fashion a company that was on the brink of death. We'll pick up with Sean Flanagan, the chief executive, on how they turned around a dud effectively and rescued it and saved jobs in the process, I guess.
0: You're with Bruce Whitfield on
1: 702. 702. Well, a tweet or an X or a social media post with uh, the retail sector veteran Sid Vianello today posting some really interesting questions about the pick and pay rights issue. Uh, He says, pick and pay. Now the big question, will Ackermans put in money? To retain control, they'll need to invest at least one billion rand. But, asks... Uh, Sid Vianello, who's been around the retail block more than once or twice, will investors follow rights if the Ackermans retain control? Sid Vianello doubts it. it. Looks like the Ackerman era is coming to an end. Quite sad, really. Well, I've put feelers out into the Ackerman camp and there's no official position from the Ackermans yet as to what they're going to be doing or what they're not going to be doing In my mind, it would make sense that they would follow their rights, but what would the consequences be? Meryl Pick is a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group, and she's on the line to us from Cape Town this evening. Um, Are you having the same sort of thoughts as Sid Vianello as to, uh, are are the Ackermans a a linchpin in investor decisions as to whether or not to follow their rights? Meryl? Good
4: evening, Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. Um, I to not share the sentiment that investors would um, factor the, the Ackerman control as the deciding factor around whether to follow their rights or not. I think the, the Ackerman control and the you know, economic voting rights have been part of the investment case um, for decades now and people have held the share and <laughs> seen an investment case in the share um, from time to time. So I think the question would be how would that control influence capital allocation going forward? And if you think about what are we seeing? So we've seen Sean Summers returning to the group, um, endorsed by the Ackerman family, seemingly given quite a lot of leeway um, to put forward what he thinks of the strategy and even what he thinks of a balance sheet. I think that's a positive sign. Um, we've seen them do a 180 on their ECOSENI strategy, which was rolling out the the QualiSave um, kind of offering to to go head-to-head with Yousave um, within ShopRite Checkers. Sean Summers has come in and, and stopped that, so that's another sign that he's actually been, been given um, um, power to make some real um, decisions. Um, we've seen them stop the, the dividend and now we are seeing some quite decisive action around, um, around the balance sheet. So after a number of years of potentially questionable capital allocation decisions, in particular prioritizing the dividend, um, and one could argue funding the dividend through debt, Um, You know, they've been paying the dividend, they've been expanding DCs, they've been rolling out new store formats, all the while continuing to pay the dividend through COVID, through load shedding. Um, We're seeing a a pivot now to take some quite tough decisions on the balance sheet. Um, So they are in control now and they are making these decisions now.
1: Okay, I mean, and it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it it is. This is the decisive action that has been needed for some time, I suspect, and that's precisely why the Ackermans asked Sean Summers to return. they have not just endorsed him; they asked him to come back, and he's agreed. I think yeah. on the basis that you know, I I need to be able to call the shots here, and I need to do what needs to be done, the painful surgery that needs to happen. And it's also really interesting, and it's going to be a wonderful opportunity, I think, for investors um, to have another retail option because Boxer will mm. be separately listed on the JSE. Pick and Pay will retain control of Boxer, but it mm. is the, 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 I don't know, the, the golden child in the portfolio yes. at the moment. It's in a sweet spot of the mass market of South Africa and, and that's the place where you're going to uh, compete with YouSave, I guess. You don't need the Quality yes. Save business.
4: Yes, I mean, certainly I agree with your view. I was, uh, well, we, we have not been big shareholders, but um, just as a as a student of mm strategy One Hundred and One. <laughs> I felt it was unnecessary um, to segment the pick and pay brand to that extent. And, um, you know, Sean Summers came in, one, one of the first things that he commented on was, was that. Um, and I personally happen to agree with that. Um, we are going to actually get to see now with more clarity during the course of 2024, what boxer actually does produce because those numbers are still somewhat of a mystery. Um, and that will reveal probably the extent of the problem within pick-and-pay might surprise. Um, but perhaps also the quality that sits within the box model, um, the returns that that business is generating um, you know, may also surprise. And I think back to the, the capital allocation point, um, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here on, on, on whether the family puts in money or not. I had a, a quick look. Over the past four years, this business has paid out $4 billion of Dividends.
1: You know, uh, Graham Kerner. Sorry, just uh, I know you missed the Graham Kerner interview. Graham was oh, saying yes, the the dividend policy of Pick and Pay has been considerably more generous than Shoprite's, for example, paying out seventy cents seventy cents in the rand versus Shoprite's fifty odd cents in the rand. And so, you know, where Pick and Pay has been incredibly generous with dividends, it's now you know to turn a, use a turn of phrase, time for shareholders to pay back some of the money, perhaps. Exactly, it's a dividend clawback. Meryl Pick, thank you very, very much indeed. Portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. A fascinating tale today of a chief executive coming in and shaking the tree and, and taking some big decisions and raising capital and saying, in order for this business to be saved and to be restored to a, a glory, whether it's a former glory or a future glory, these are the things we have to do. The market, I think, will appreciate it. Um, certainly, the, the commentary around the actions that are being proposed is positive and I suspect the will follow their rights it will doesn't make sense for them to be diluted further um, and uh, i suspect that that is precisely what will happen uh, the other rescue story which we'll do in just a few minutes is the story of avengers an astonishing story of corporate strategy playing out in real time 702 bruce is on the money show Another shake-up happening, of course, with new management, Chart Kruger, who used to run the rival uh, two Tiger brands uh, until about two years ago, and then Chart Kruger was brought in to help turn around Tiger brands. It's announced new managing directors to head up its business units and fresh blood coming in to rethinking of the bakeries business, the grains business, the culinary business, the snacks business, the treats and beverage business, the home and personal care and baby, and of course, Tiger Brands International. Um, these businesses are big, and they're brands that they are custodians of our household brands. People love their all gold tomato sauce or their coo jam or their baked beans or whatever it is. And these companies are struggling to make profit. They've got to be run differently. They've got to be thought of differently. They've got to get their distribution models different perhaps. Got to get new product lines. Do away with those that no longer work, Um, for example. So yes, some really interesting challenges for South African businesses. But you've got leaders who are prepared to step up to the plate and think in different and and courageous ways and to break the mould in some respects uh, in, in these businesses. Well, the Chief Executive of Bytes Technology Technology Group, which was spun out of Altron uh, in 2020. Um, Bytes has got its primary listing on the London Stock Exchange, a secondary listing on the JSE, so you can easily buy shares using RANS in Bytes Technology Group. But its chief executive this week resigned with immediate effect after sparking controversy surrounding the trading of company shares. Now, I don't think we've got too much detail on these shared trades, but in a statement yesterday, the company said Neil Murphy has uh, also notified the board today that he has made a number of trades in the company's shares that had not been disclosed to the company or the market in compliance with the person discharging managerial responsibility disclosure requirements. Uh, When you are a Person who's got managerial responsibility in a listed company, and you do trade shares, you do need to disclose it, not only to the board of directors, but also certainly on the case of the JSE, and I'm sure the London Stock Exchange has got a similar mechanism. On sends, the stock exchange news service, it's always an indication as to whether management feels confident in the future, or pessimistic in the future, or simply needs money to buy, I don't know, a university student a car, or pay for the fees, or whatever the case might be. We don't know exactly. Why these share trades happened and why there wasn't disclosure? But Jan van has been doing his best to put together that story. The editor at My Broadband this evening. How was the chief executive of Byte's Technology bust? Do we know any detail on this one, Jan? No, no.
0: We don't know if he was bust or if he just kind of came clean. Uh, and and uh, as a result, the the board required his resignation. So uh, unfortunately, those details haven't been released yet. Um, yeah, the story's quite fresh, so it usually mm. takes, uh, and sometimes we never get those details. Sometimes, you know, you just kind of go, okay, the CEO's resigned, off he goes. Um, you know, they, they do some forensic accounting, and if they see that, because right now they say, listen, he's he holds 2,890,218 shares, and um, that's uh, what was essentially, the, you know, the, that's what was disclosed. So last, um, you know, disclosure was, they said on the 23rd of of November, um, Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's still the same since then. So, nothing much has changed. Yeah, And that might really be the last year of
1: it. Well, certainly we know that the share trades have not happened in the last three months uh, because the share holding was the same in November last year to what it is now. So, this is slightly more historic. And I wonder whether his decision to trade in shares and not disclose that he was trading in shares is either the dumbest oversight by a chief executive who should know the rules or a deliberate attempt at deception, which is equally thick considering the level of surveillance and the level of oversight that does happen within companies because, you know, there are checks and balances to make sure that executives don't trade shares without notifying the rest of shareholders because they are privy to valuable insider information and their actions can be driven by that insider information.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe it turns out that, you know, it's some trust or, uh, you know, some investment vehicle that he happens to have, you know, some, you know, distant relationship with or is invested in, uh, but doesn't actually have a say in, uh, um, you know, yeah. did, did something and it triggered some, some requirements in the UK. I don't know how strict that is on the JSE. Um, but like you know, if you're not involved with how you know the, you know a, a trust or whatever makes its investment decisions and they invest something, but you happen to be invested in them, you know uh, w- what happens. So yeah, we we, we unfortunately we you know it, it could be a dumb oversight, but it could also be something where you know you don't even think about it twice, and it you know might be far less volume than than he's moved by himself. So for example, no, um, on the 22nd of June. Um, uh, last year he disclosed a, a sale of 950,000 shares, um, uh, you know, and, and before that uh, there was there was another uh, sale uh, in 2022 of 500,000 shares, and so, uh, you know, it might be that the volumes of are, are so low it didn't even register, and he's like, ah, oh, it's some throwaway in, you know, retirement annuity or something. Uh,
1: it's nothing big. No, I think that's a good explanation, Jan and uh, It's speculative, and of course, but it does. He's got a track record of disclosure. Thank you, Jan, very much, editor of my broadband. He's got a, a, he's got a track record of disclosure, so it's unlikely that it would have been an oversight or just being, you know, duplicitous or stupid. Um, I, okay. I think Jan's got a good explanation there as to what may have happened, whether we will ever find out. But, it, yeah, it's a nice, salacious tale of a South African company with operations in the UK, listed their secondary listing on the JSE and the CEO. The moment he found out, he quits. Imagine. Cyril so, Ramaphosa would like to use that, the Vermeerland defence, I suppose, to say, well, I don't have direct control over the farm or the couch or the cash in the couch. Therefore, you can't blame me for the cash of the couch. I think that was part of the argument, at least.
0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106FM.
1: Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this Thursday evening, the day after the day after the budget. Well, it's just the day after the budget. Uh, But it seems to have gone. And I heard the finance minister was defending the budget, saying it's not an election-winning budget. And I think that's the thing that stands out in my mind anyway on Budget 2024, is that they could have taken the mickey. They really could have. They could have um, striven and, and made some silly populist choices, uh, especially considering the polling, the ANC's polling at the moment. But they didn't. Um, they really, I think, were quite um, circumspect in the decisions that they made. Um, and, uh, yeah, I thought, uh, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable. I think maybe on our money show, explain it tomorrow. We need to understand whatever that acronym is for the golden foreign currency reserves. I don't know if the Reserve Bank governor is available, but we know the people let's see if we can get the governor on to explain because I think he'd be good to explain it he seems to know a thing or two about the foreign exchange reserves Um, they are under lock and key his and he keeps the key I think he probably wears a waistcoat and he keeps the key tucked into the waistcoat um, when he's not on TV of course Um, but he is a snappy dresser is our Reserve Bank governor Uh, the Avenge chief executive Sean Flanagan is standing by I want to talk about the Lazarus-like recovery of Avenge and the way in which it's happened I found the story absolutely fascinating Pavlo with small business this evening uh, talking mindset and mindset is one of these things that gets gr- grotesquely abused like innovation everyone's talking mindset and it becomes a little bit like hippie and shua but actually mindset is pivotal in achieving anything of any significance whether you are somebody who is uh, uh, any good at sport and you want to rise to the top of that profession or you any good at anything in the world if you've got a good mindset you've got a better chance of succeeding if you're constantly second guessing yourself and doubting yourself or you don't really know what it is that you are and stand for well then your mindset is weak and you're not going to succeed it's quite simple really so yes mindset is important and then the investment school at half past seven tonight here on the money show the money
2: show
0: with bruce whitfield on 702 702
1: the amazing story tonight of how one of the biggest construction companies in South Africa came close to collapse but has been resurrected on the other side of the world. Avenge was one of the firms fined for collusion in the rush to get South Africa ready for the Football World Cup in 2010. Things then rapidly fell apart not only for Avenge but the rest of the construction industry and it's a shadow of its former self as firms increasingly have gone international on wafer thin margins and have further got burned. But Uh, run briefly by the former chief executive of Cahiso Media, Roger Jardine, who then became the chief executive of Prime Media, the company that owns this radio station, before becoming chairman of First Rand. Now he wants to become president, Roger Jardine. Um, But that's a side issue. Since uh, since Roger Jardine's time, however, there's been a metamorphosis of the firm, which has been selling off assets since 2017 and reducing its debt burden. Now, including the once mighty Grinnecker LTA, which itself, I learned this week, was actually listed on the JSE in 1964 before Avenge bought it, um, and then Avenge sold it off. Now, Avenge has got just two main divisions, Mwellmans, which does contract work for mining companies in South Africa, and McConnell Dowell, which does... As building an infrastructure work in Australia and Southeast Asia. The outgoing Avenge Chief Executive, Sean Flanagan, is with us this evening. And this week announcing management changes, Sean, and a really interesting strategy that I'd like to explore with you. Your management team, entirely Australian. Your reporting currency going from Rands to the Aussie dollar. 91% of your uh, money is generated in that part of the world, of course. But the head office and the listing. Remaining in Johannesburg. Just take me through the process that has got you to this astonishing point.
5: Um, yeah. Good evening, uh, Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. So, a uh, correction, firstly, oh. um, the the management team is not entirely South African. Australian. Uh, the group, C- uh, oh, sorry, Australian. The yeah. group CFO, Adrian McCartney, um, has been working. You know, he's been my partner through this process over the last five years. Um, he is. He has, in fact, uh, relocated to Australia, but uh, but Adrian um, is a South African um, and has been based in in, okay. in our head office here in Johannesburg um, for oh, seven eight years. That he's been uh, group CFO.
1: But once once they smell that dusty Australian <clears throat> air, I don't know. You know what happens to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but my my point I think. Let me correct it then and say the entire the management team is going to be based in Australia. That's correct. So, so
5: the senior leadership team will be based in Australia, and the way the the group has now been structured, um, you know, effectively we have uh, one one company now, uh, Avenge, uh, we've, we've we've flattened the structure very significantly, and uh, and um, so so um, the M- McConnell Dow used to run with its own board, and Mormons used to run with their own boards um we will now have a single board i mean we'll have statutory entities and and they will be required to have directors but uh but but effectively avenge will run now as a single board um, with a single management team um, so below the executive team we will run what we call an opco and uh, and that will really be made up of the managing directors okay. of the various business units so those business units being our infrastructure businesses in Australia, um, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia, our mining business, Mormons, based here in South Africa, and then we have a, a, a building business called Built Environs, um, which works across uh, New, Ze- New Zealand, primarily in Auckland, um, in South Australia and in, uh, in uh, um, Victoria, in Australia. Was, was um,
1: this the clear strategy? As, as you sat in 2017 looking at uh, Aveng and just looking at the debt problem and looking at all of these businesses, which are great operating entities, but Aveng at the, the holding company level had huge problems. Um, was this the strategy from 2017 or did it sort of metamorphosize over time?
5: So um, the strategy from 2017 was certainly to dispose of what we termed the non-core businesses. So those, you know, Grinica, LTA, Trident Steel, our manufacturing businesses um, and our material businesses in, um, um, as well. Um, so that, that certainly was the strategy and to focus on, the, on what we termed the two core businesses being McConnell Dow and, and uh, Mormons. At that point in time, we weren't really thinking about relocating the epicenter of the of, of the of the business to Australia, but over time it's become very clear that with you know eighty five to ninety percent of our revenues and certainly eighty to eighty five percent of of our future profits being made out of um, the Australian business um, uh, McConnell Dow, that it makes absolute sense for the epicenter to 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 move there. We did signal a couple of years ago. That we we were going to look at um, at uh, alternative capital markets. You know, a huge element of our business is is capex. So, Mormons is a very capital intensive business, and it's very difficult to 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 buy big yellow mining equipment in dollars and service it in rands. So, so that was certainly you know part of the thinking over the last couple of years, but our, but but certainly in, in 2017, 18. Our focus really was on disposing of the non-core businesses and uh, and and reducing our debt, which was, as, as you said earlier, was very, very substantial.
1: You will stay on the board as a non-executive director. I assume you stay on in South Africa and you're going to have a mix of uh, non-executive directors in both Australia and in South Africa. What, what do, have we worked out a board structure yet? yeah so
5: so um the chairman of our board philip hawkeby is based in london um, um and so and and philip as you may well know is um, is also the chairman of investic bank yeah um so he's based in london um we have scott uh, um cummings who's who's my successor and adrian mccartney the cfo they both will be based in in melbourne we have one other director based in Australia, uh, in, in, Sydney. We have a director who's based in just outside New York, and then we have three South, three, three South Africans. So we have, uh, um, Bridget Medici, who is the, the, the chair of our audit committee, David Noko. Um, who who is on our board and myself? We will be based here in South Africa.
1: Uh, I'm assuming board meetings are, are virtual then, because it's just um, no, it, it's not no, no, no. Oh. Um, we
5: have our. I mean, we we had our board meetings last week was our board week, and and all of the directors were in Johannesburg okay. before that. Um, but you know, I mean, we we've obviously got to look at it. In, for now, certainly, the, the plan would be. Effective control will remain in South Africa and therefore the board meetings need to be in South Africa, major decisions and what have you clearly need to be made in South Africa. Um, But over time, you know, we would see that probably at least two of our board meetings would be in Australia and, uh, and, and the other two probably in South Africa.
1: And of course, you're looking for a new jurisdiction for a listing at some point in the in the future as well. Had you not gone on this extraordinary journey and I think it is an extraordinary journey uh, would avenge exist today do you think so the, I think the short answer
5: to that is no um and and you know there were times i mean it very interesting when I, when i when i you know I was asked to do this this um, this chat with you this evening thinking back over, over the last five years. So in 2017, I was an independent non-exec on the, on the AVENGE board. Um, at, um, Eric Dyack stepped in as executive chairman and he, and Adrian, um, uh, McCartney, they, they started this process and brought the strategy to the board to dispose of the, these, the, the non-core businesses. Um, I, I, Eric requested that I step in and help him restructure and dispose of Grenica LTA but I was doing that as, a, as an external person albeit that I was a director um, and then in 2018, December 2018, the board asked me to step in as CEO so I took over on the 1st of Feb 2019 and uh, you know we, we did a lot of disposals, I mean we've disposed of you know, something like 18 or 20 businesses, 20 odd business units. Um, at the time, we had well over two billion, I think it was two and a half to three billion rands worth of, of, of debt. And, and, and of course the banks and other lenders were extremely unhappy with us. In February 2020, I think it was, we announced the first profit in, in Avenge for many, many years. And at the time, we were making good progress with most of the disposals. We hadn't yet disposed of, of, of Trident Steel. Um, and, uh, and Adrian and I went off to meet with shareholders in New York and London and, and, and Germany. And, uh, and whilst we were in London, the, the world started to go into lockdown because of COVID. In fact, we didn't think we'd get home. We managed to get back to South Africa. And, of, and within two days, I think, of, of, of getting back to South Africa, um, the president put South Africa into lockdown. That for us was, was probably the most scary moment because, we, um, you know, we had no revenue in South Africa at all because all of the mines had closed. We, we Trident Steel was closed, etc. cetera. And, uh, and that was a very, very difficult moment. We had uh holding our cash flows of about 400 million at the time and uh and of course the banks uh, well the banks didn't know what COVID meant either so they were being very very careful about businesses that they they supported in the end we managed to negotiate uh, a short-term loan of about 200 million from the banks and we had to go to our staff and um and and you know from from the the, the board down all the way down to you know, people who who you know sit at our reception or our drivers. Um, we all took took a pay cut for a month. I
2: remember that, yes.
5: Um, and uh, and and so um you know that was an extremely difficult time. We did manage then to sell off a whole lot of steel out of Trident Steel at the time. We and we got out of the merchanting steel business. So we managed to pay the banks back a couple of months later. Um, eventually, we did. We were able to repay our staff, which was very important. When we, when we got to a place where that we could pay back the staff, we did so. And uh, so that was probably the most difficult time. And then in COVID, you know, Adrian and I were, were, were going into the office and we were negotiating with the banks. I mean, there were forty people on calls, all of them with their, with their cameras off on Teams. Um, and it was an extremely difficult yeah. time, but we got through it with the support of, of, of our banks, um, and uh, and the support of our board and 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 our major shareholder yeah. in New York, who, who 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 came to who came to the table with a uh, under rote rights
1: issue, tissue. Uh, Sean, it's, a, it's an amazing story of the, the Lazarus-like recovery and survival of Avenge. And thank you for sharing the tale with us this evening. I'm really grateful. I found it fascinating when I was doing my research on it on Monday. And the chief executive at Avenge, Sean Flanagan, this evening. Avenge, I mean, the history in South Africa dates back to 1880. And through bad management decisions in the round to 2010, they got themselves into the first lot of trouble, then survived that, then got to a point where, OK, the strategy is to sell off the non-core assets, then get to a point in 2020 where it's all about to go pear-shaped. Um, and then the extraordinary lengths that they went to and to rescue it. Now it's effectively an Australian business listed on the JSE head office in Johannesburg. I suspect that will change over time. But yeah, how to resurrect a broken company. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. Small
2: business.
0: With Pavlo Fatidis.
1: There are a couple of words and phrases that trigger not the best reaction out of me. One of them is, reach out Muhammad Ali used to reach out and you don't want to be reached out to by Muhammad Ali two-year-olds reach out when they want to be picked up and then PR people reach out don't reach out phone contact email don't get don't reach out the other one is mindset it's a word that upsets me disproportionately But it's an important one, Pavlo Fatidis, Chief Executive at Auric Business Accelerator, because mindset, I think, is the best descriptor for the fortitude, the resilience, the toughness, the preparedness, the gravitas, the everything that you need to succeed, particularly when you are starting out in a small business and
6: running a small business. I think, even probably more so, having just listened to Sean's story, 400 million Rand hole in the cash flow. If you don't have the right mindset around how to reset, rebuild and reignite yourself out of that mess, Bruce, well, then avenge wouldn't be where it is today. So perhaps it matters more than we realize. And the most important thing to understand is that narratives or stories are the most powerful shapers of our mindsets. And mindsets Consciously, unconsciously, direct where we invest and spend our time and attention and where you spend your time and attention can help you understand why you are where you are today. But more importantly, can help you soothsay your future because the mindset that you occupy today is probably largely controlled and managed by habits, the company you keep and that environment holds you and locks you in a pattern that if you can't see it for what it is and you can't set yourself apart from it will keep you where you are so mindsets do matter
1: Uh, what do we mean by mindset i mean let's go back to 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 the beginning i I think i i encapsulated it but you'll have a far better descriptor
6: well in many ways a, a mindset really shapes and forms your attitude around whatever it may be so in your business If you hold an attitude that the future is bright, you will see things fundamentally different to someone who is in the same industry, a similar business that has a mindset, believing that things are poor. And that mindset, that attitude consciously and unconsciously determines how you make your decisions, how you behave, how you direct, how you lead and through that It forms and shapes the behaviors that manifest what you have in front of you. So I'll give you a great example. I worked with a really, really interesting individual who actually helped me understand this in very practical terms. He's an individual who made in 2012 around $10 million of pure profit. And he is a competitive angler. And the way that angling works in the United States, specifically freshwater angling, is there are 27 lakes, and over the summer period, when the season is in full swing, there are competitions held at all these lakes. You need to win 17 of those competitions to become the world champion, and upon becoming the world champion, you get all the endorsements and all the money that flows in with it. And I remember having a conversation with Kevin and I said to him, what sets you apart? And he says, that is a great question. And it's a great question because 500 of us are in the top tier of competitive fishing. That means we all have very similar skills and aptitudes and natural instincts that allow us to compete with each other. To win consistently, you need to have a fundamentally different mindset to competition because learning how to cast your rod better is certainly not going to be what sets you apart. So I said, tell me more. And he says, well, during the winter season, all the legs freeze over. This is after all the United States of America. It gets really cold in winter. 499 of my competitors see it as an opportunity to relieve themselves from the pressures of a very aggressive and extremely competitive summer season of work. They may go home and binge watch Netflix or take a vacation. He says, what I do is I put my poor wife into our RV, which is a recreational vehicle. It's an enormous, enormous truck-style caravan. Yes. We visit the Great Lakes of the United States. I put on a cold water diving suit, drill a hole in the ice. And with the help of my wife, I plunge into the lakes and seek to understand where all the big bass hibernate. I then mark those spots so that when the competitions come back into full flight with summer, I can be the person who knows where the best spot is. And given that I have the fastest boat, I get there first. He says that mindset gives me a one, two, maybe 3% advantage to the other 499 equally adept competitors that I face.
1: Tough as nails um, is the point, and that's the impact of mindset. And it does, I suppose, it determines outcomes, it determines your future. If you have that mindset, which is a never-say-die approach to the way in which you do it, whether it's fly fishing competitively or whether it's running a small business, you've got a far better chance than somebody who sort of sits bemoaning their status in life or where they are in life.
6: Or, Bruce, even worse, allowing the narratives of other people to occupy their time and attention. If you look at where we are in 2024, we have this week, the two-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. We have the Middle East erupting. We have the narrative across the board of Putin putting nukes into space. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty. We have over 50 elections occurring across the globe. We have rapidly advancing AI that is that makes it incredibly hard to tell the difference from fact and fiction. And the noise that's going to come across our board through media, through our devices, through businesses that we operate in, those narratives, if we allow them to occupy our time and attention as opposed to our own personal narrative around why do I do what I do as a business owner? Where do I intend to be by 10, 15, 50 years from now? If we allow those narratives to supersede our own narrative, our time and attention will be diverted into other agendas as opposed to the agenda of competing, outwitting and outplaying all our competitors when they themselves have their time and attention occupied by those other agendas. It is a fantastic opportunity to get your head straight, Mm. to set a hard target, to set a long distance target, put your head down and I say this cautiously, put the blinkers on (laughs) and only look and see at what you have control over. Let that be where your time and attention goes. Let that be the narrative that governs your mindset and put it into play.
1: I wonder, because mindset is a fairly new word that's entered our language. I'm sure it's existed for many, many years. I'm sure it goes back a long time, but it's been popularized in the last couple of years. Is that because it's more important
6: than ever or just that we're paying more attention to it? No, I think it's more important than ever because I think we're suddenly realizing how habits form and how behaviors form. And in many ways, you're absolutely right. It's a very, very new word in mainstream let's call it business, but one of the forefathers who had really put an enormous amount of architecture and structure to understanding and appreciating it is the late Carl Gustav Jung, who uh, was the late psychologist who, who, who brought about Jungian psychology. He actually dissected and tried to put into an architecture, a shape and design of how we behave and think and how we behave and think directly correlates to how we manifest what we have. So that thinking is now, what about 40, 50 years old, only, only. It's very young within the existence of Western thinking and psychology. And I think mindset is going to become a deeper and more powerful area of attention. In order for us to harness and control the potential that we all have as individuals. The Money Show.
1: Investment School. We hear a lot about China and we hear a lot of, di- of really disparate data on China. For example, Richmond came up with a trading update a couple of weeks ago in which it reported that sales were stratospheric and China was booming. A week before, Burberry, the UK-based luxury goods group, had said, well, everything is falling to pot because um, and nothing really exciting is happening in China. De Beers today, um, the Anglo-American update, and we spoke to Duncan oneblatt the chief executive earlier, um, was talking about the fact that you know, luxury sales in China under pressure um, so certainly there are mixed signals coming through, we also know that one of the biggest property companies in the world has failed in China, we know that there's a big property debt overhang in China, we know that growth rates aren't what they were we know that there is a, a, a crackdown in, in terms of government regulation on technology companies which have been allowed to expand without so much as a, 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 a please could you calm down and stop trapping children in your uh, addictive algorithms and uh, Now they're being asked to rethink the way they work. So most investors really, I think, are quite apprehensive about the China future. For a long time, China regarded as the the country that by 2030 will surpass America's GDP. That's looking less likely. India suddenly is the flavor of the month. But what does it mean, though, for China and for an investment opportunity in China? How cheap are Chinese equities? We know they're filthy cheap because we've seen the... uh, um, the, the Shanghai index fall to levels last seen 30 years ago. Uh, what about the debt levels? What about all these bad questions? Let's get some common sense in here. Well, not so common, frankly. Um, some good solid sense then. Simon Fillimore, Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities. I could talk myself out of ever dreaming about investing in China because there is so much bad news. But perhaps that's precisely the time we should be paying closer attention to China, Simon.
7: Yes, I, I believe so. I think it's been a, a difficult place to invest over the last couple of years, and as you mentioned, um, investors in that stock market over the last couple of years um, haven't fared well, or for that matter, or for that matter, over the long term, the uh, Chinese stock market is down 42% over three, year, over three years, and as you uh, rightly alluded, uh, both the Hang Seng and the Shanghai uh, indices are at levels last seen two or three decades ago. So there's certainly a lot of uh, fear in that market at the moment. And we look when we look at the Bank of America um, fund manager survey that comes out every month, we see that the second most popular trade is for fund managers to bet against uh, China. So certainly uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons not to invest in China, uh, but one could arguably, arguably say that um, a lot of that Bad news um, is already in the price. Um, And then I guess the next question is uh, what would be the catalyst uh, for a change in sentiment um, in in Chinese equities? And a lot of investors have been expecting some type of uh, big bang bazooka from government in terms of stimulus, much, much like they did in 2016 and 2019. But we've seen more subtle signs. And I think um, in terms of those subtle signs, uh, they've literally taken uh, a playbook from what Ben Bernanke did uh, back in in, in 2010. Um, And at the moment, the Chinese economy, it's no uh, secret, is is struggling. um, And that's creating um, a negative feedback loop. Um, So because people's wealth in terms of their um, housing uh, and their housing prices, is, is, is their wealth is declining because of that. Um, they less prone to spend, um, uh, just, which just repeats the cycle and it carries on. And what Ben Bernanke did um, in, in 2010, uh, when the U.S. Uh, was faced with high unemployment and um, falling house prices, um, he believed that a bull market in stocks would boost co- confidence, encourage spending, and raise output and employment. Um, And we certainly saw from the the bottom of the financial crisis um, the impact um, that that had. Um, So we're seeing a similar thing from um, regulators in in China. Um, And uh, we've more recently seen the the Chinese um, sovereign wealth fund start buying ETFs. And then the um, Chinese securities regulator has started encouraging institutional investors Um, to to start participating uh, in the market to try and get this positive feedback loop um, going. And then they've also done a number of other things where they've reduced uh, stamp duty to trading shares, they've uh, reduced brokerage commissions, um, they've reduced margin requirements. Um, So there's a whole lot of positive signs that we're seeing from uh, the regulators. And I think one thing you can generally count on is when a Chinese official is told to do something. that yeah. usually does. He does it to the power of of n.
1: Exactly. How quickly would you like me to do it, sir? Is generally the response. I, I, you, know, you were talking there, and I was, sort of my mind drifted a moment. I said, "Oh, look, he's talking about South Africa. So much is going wrong. So many, but so much is priced in. So many things. But if we looked at the all share index over, I don't know, the last eight years or so, um, you would say, well, the market is flat." The JSE is going to be trading between sort of broadly speaking 70 and 80,000, mostly in a mid-range up to 75,000 for much of the last seven, eight years. And therefore the JSE has gone nowhere. However, if I then just picked a handful of shares, I could probably have doubled my money, whether it be Standard Bank, Clicks, and CapiTech, or any um, Mr. Price and other retailers, perhaps um, Shoprite could throw it in there. If you stockpick smartly, suddenly your performance relative to the index is the the outlier in the same way as China. If you'd bought 10 cent uh, Alibaba and I don't know something else impressive, um, you would have done the, you, know, you would have done very well out of China. Um, we we're wrong to be obsessing, I think, about the index. Index or not?
7: Um, I think that the index is a broad representation of of shares, and I think for the average investor, it's it's very difficult to pick a few shares and and literally uh, say the two hundred shares in South Africa, for instance, that investors can invest in. Yeah, it, it's probably um, you, you can hold up both hands, and that's the number that have done exceptionally well um, over the last. Uh, decade, so it's almost like a needle uh, in, in, in a haystack um, in terms of of picking them. And I think your point there pretty well is pretty good in terms of emerging markets generally um, have underperformed um, over the last uh, ten, fifteen years. And we see these things move um, in in cycles. And in fact, uh, many investors were actually fed up with the the US. Um, in the early 2000s, there was almost a 10-year period where they underperformed uh, emerging markets uh, horribly. Uh, we've seen that ty- cycle turn quite dramatically now um, and uh, yeah, these things tend to mean, revit, mean revert and, uh, and I expect the same will happen at some stage again.
1: Uh, yeah, can you let us know when and fire a starting gun so everybody's <laughs> aware of it? How uh, when we look at South Africa and we look at China, and, and we, I mean, you seem to be suggesting that China's worth a, a, a pitch at least. How much can investors put offshore via investment structures? Because if you do have money in South Africa and you're disappointed with the growth and you're worried about the fact that you know America's running very very hot at the moment, and you kind of go, well, I'd like to pop some into some Indian share and I'd like to pop some into some Chinese shares as well. What what can you and can't you
7: do? You know, so the, uh, the environment has changed quite dramatically for investors um, in terms of what they can invest offshore. Uh, so in terms of compulsory money, pension fund money, investors can now invest um, up to 45% of their uh, uh, retirement assets offshore, which is quite a significant portion. And in fact, we've seen... A large differential in performance between those South African managers that have taken that uh, limit to, to the extreme, and and, and those that uh, haven't. Yeah, I think your average South African fund manager last year would have generated um, a, pretty much a flat return, while those investing offshore, uh, having a significant portion offshore, would have would have earned about fifteen to twenty percent. So it, the, the the bulk of people have a significant portion of their assets in their retirement funds. So certainly in that, it's very easy to move 45% offshore. Uh, For any additional uh, capital outside that, um, there are essentially two mechanisms um, that the Reserve Bank allows. The one is the annual um, single discretionary allowance, which every calendar year, um, individuals are allowed to take out a million rand per year. Um, And then there's the uh, foreign investment allowance, which allows up to uh, 10 million rand every year uh, on a rolling 12-month basis. So essentially, for a um, a married couple, a couple every year they can take out 22 million rand out of South Africa, which is in excess of most South Africans. uh,
1: So (laughs) So for every South African. (laughs) Okay, but 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 for the rest of us, for mere mortals, for mere mortals, not for those who've got the twenty-two million rand a year as a married couple, um, to disperse, you know, year in and year out. For mere mortals, have got twenty-two thousand or two hundred and twenty-two thousand or maybe two two million. I don't know. Whatever it might be. Um, what are the options in the real world?
7: Yes, So the the first option is the. uh, I guess on the JSC, there's a number of ETFs that trade that track offshore markets. There are ETNs on the JSC that also track uh, foreign shares, uh, some of the bigger ones like Amazon and Microsoft. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole host of offshore service providers which offer investment platforms where uh, South Africans can invest offshore and access yeah, pretty much any share in the world or uh, fund in the world. So that would be the most obvious and uh, probably ideal choice for, for most investors.
1: Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities, Simon Fillimore, this evening on The Money Show. More with him in just a moment as we wrap up this Thursday evening edition of The Money Show. The Money Show. Investment School. The Money Show is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action at insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insight series. APSA is a registered FSP. Simon Fillmore, the Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities, uh, where we look at market sectors, emerging market sectors in particular, asset classes, where you look at South African investors who have got a smaller and smaller universe in which they can invest. And you're not just going, well, it's China, America or South Africa. Can we cast the net a little broader?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, where one doesn't have stock-specific skill, there's a whole lot of ETFs that – uh, these days, host to in- investors' needs, and whether one wants to invest in India, there would be an ETF for that, and similar you know, for any other uh, emerging market um, in-, in the world, like places like Mexico, Thailand, India. Um, uh, they are the ETFs for that, and um, you know, I think they ca- they capture the beta of the market uh, well for investors. And there's also restrictions for investors. Uh, investing in uh, stocks directly. Um, so, for in, in places like India, um, Vietnam, as well, the the restrictions on 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 um, on, on what foreigners can do. And uh, we, we had, I suppose, it was quite an amusing um, experience when we could look look back retrospectively at it. But we spent nine months opening up a stockbroking account in Vietnam, um, so we could uh, buy a stock that we had identified that we thought. Would be the next big thing. So it took nine months to get the account <laughs> opened. Uh, then we put our order in with the with the stockbroker to buy the actual share, um, and, and they came back to us and said, "No, the stock um, foreigners have bought the stock to a fifty percent limit that the government has installed, and in. we can't actually buy the share." Oh. Uh, so there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of nuances uh, like that when investing in uh, emerging markets. Um, and I think for many of those instances, just the ETF uh, would be a better option.
1: You no, know, Exactly. I mean, very few of us have got the, the capability all the time, the patience. You would have seen a huge opportunity, of course, in order to do so. Uh, but even with all of your skills, ability and understanding of markets, you know, when the rules change or the tides turn or the sands shift, um, it becomes that much more complicated. In China, I mean, the the sectors that look attractive for investments in China? Um, one has to go stock specific again. We know the big league names. Have you found some little gems hidden away somewhere in a in a corner of a Chinese cupboard?
7: Yeah, I think at at, at this stage we still focus largely um, on the large or, or, or mega cap um, shares. Certainly, historically we have invested in some of the smaller mid cap names, but I think when when liquidity starts flowing back or foreign liquidity starts flowing back into the Chinese market, it will move the uh, bigger names uh, first. And I think it's fairly to in, invest in the bigger names uh, that we all know at the moment, just because the valuation levels um, are, are so depressed when we, we run um, some of the part models on um, some of the large tech companies in, in China. And it's almost like we have to uh, bang the computer just to check that it's working properly when we look at the numbers the discounts to uh, NAV are, are so wide and uh, uh, some of them are uh, just uh, ludicrous but I, I can mention a few of them it's something like NetEase the second biggest gaming company in uh, in China behind Tencent has, has 20% of its market cap represented uh, by cash Alibaba which everyone knows has um 30% of its uh, market cap represented by net cash on its on its uh, balance sheet. Baidu has forty-five percent. KD.com has eighty percent of its market cap represented by net cash on its balance sheet. You don't get those type of numbers unless uh, uh you're faced with a very uh, depressed market. And I think in in my career I've probably only seen valuations uh that cheap once or once or twice and uh, that would be after the the uh global financial crisis, and then off to the dot-com bubble.
1: Are there some smart ETFs in terms of ETFs that go for the top 50 Chinese tech companies or top 100 Chinese tech companies in the same way as I'm sure you can zone in on sort of smaller target areas rather than buying the whole S&P 500, you might want to buy just Magnificent 7. There must be ETFs that do that sort of thing.
7: Yeah, there are, and I I think in its... um, purest form, an ETF is is a wonderful investment. They tend to be market cap weighted. So naturally, they're just um, rewarding the winners because as the winners get bigger, they just allocate more capital to them. And I think one of the um, dilemmas that investors face when they're looking at ETFs is there's actually just far too many of them. Um, And it it often uh, becomes quite confusing and there's an ETF if you want to invest um, in, in Japan, there's an ETF for that. If you want three times leverage, there's an ETF for that. If you want to have a Japanese ETF that's dollar hedged because you worry about the yen, uh, there, there's an ETF. So I, I think, um, generally, uh, for investors, just a simple market cap weighted on a particular market, um, is, is the best thing, uh, without getting, uh, too clever. Um, you, you also tend to pay more for those, um, esoteric, Um, ETFs. And generally, we we prefer the more vanilla type of uh, ETFs.
1: It's very easy to get too smart by half, it most certainly is. Simon Fillmore, thank you. Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities this evening, wrapping up The Money Show.